You can subscribe to The Spectator for 12 weeks for only £12 for our print and online editions, plus get six months of digital access free to The Telegraph. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash telegraph. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode, I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How did the Chinese see these issues? Now, growing up, the river near my house in Nanjing, the Qinghuaihe, was very smelly. There were the rainbow reflections of chemical effluent floating on the surface almost every single day. Only out-of-town tourists would take up the offer of these tourist boat trips onto the river, and probably only once and never again. These days, when I go back to Nanjing, the river has cleared up. But the sky is grey and smoggy, the sort of smog that I used to associate with Beijing, and that's been something that's new in the last few years compared to when I was younger. That perhaps illustrates the paradox of modern China's relationship with the environment. It seems to be one step forward in some senses and then a step back in others. So I want to talk about that a little bit today. China has long been seen as a leading polluter. Indeed, it pollutes the most out of all countries in the world. It's the largest consumer and producer of coal. It is the largest oil importer as well. And it's growing fast. Coal consumption increased fivefold from 1990 to 2018. At the same time, it accounts for a quarter of the world's renewable energy investments and is also a leading supplier and consumer of solar panels. So how do we reconcile this seeming contradiction and how green is China really? I'm joined today by journalist Isabel Hilton, the founder and editor of China Dialogue, a non-profit website that focuses on climate change. She has been awarded an OBE for her work on raising environmental awareness in China. Isabel, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. To start with, can we talk a little bit about energy usage and greenhouse gas emissions? Can you give the listeners an idea of China's emissions? Around 2004-2005, China became the world's biggest emitter by volume. Now, of course, emissions, you know, there's always an argument around emissions. There are various ways to count them or classify them. So there are per capita emissions. How much does each Chinese person emit compared to an American or a European? Uh, Because there are a lot of Chinese people, 1.34 billion, collectively, they emit a great deal. Individually, not as much as we do still, although they have been creeping up. And most of those emissions, or at least a lot of those emissions, are accounted for by China's addiction to coal. China is the world's biggest user of coal. 80% of the energy, primary energy, at the time that China became the world's biggest emitter, was produced by coal. That's come down, but it's still a huge problem. And China is still building new coal-fired power stations, which are going to make any transition much, much harder. So China is by far, if you like, the world's biggest climate problem because the volume of emissions is so great. And if China does not get hold of its emissions, then we simply can't resolve the climate problem. 
Of course, a huge part of why China has so many emissions is because of the Industrial Revolution it's essentially been undergoing in the last few decades. Do you think that Industrial Revolution is going to be slowing down now and therefore making the country likely to have peak emissions? The, co- the government says that it wants to have peak emissions by 2030. Do you think it can meet that goal? It would be a stretch, but certainly China could meet that goal. And and you're absolutely right. It, you know, the biggest, fastest Industrial Revolution of all time, which was pursued in ex- exactly the same way as industrial revolutions have been since the 18th century, since Britain started on this this journey by digging up coal and powering industry. And every single industrial revolution since then has followed the same path. Again, China's problem is one of size. China is just so big and China really didn't have very much environmental or climate headroom by the time it got to its industrial revolution. It pursued exactly the same methods and China's emissions doubled in the first decade of this century. However, I mean, if you look at the trajectory of China's industrial economy, you know, it it has followed the, the exactly the same pathway as Japan or South Korea or any of the Asian tigers. So you have a period of rapid catch up in which you take people off the land into the cities and you start essentially producing everything from t-shirts to cigarette lighters to anything with uh, at which you can leverage your cost advantage, which is largely in cheap labor. It coincided with globalization. So China quickly became the world's factory, producing relatively low added value goods in a very carbon heavy way. Now, That kind of thing works for a while, but then because it works, you price yourself out of the market. So, you know, wages rise, you lose your cost advantage. And there comes a point where if you're not to be stuck in what's called the middle income trap, you have to upgrade. So China, around the time of the 12th five-year plan, we're now looking to go into the 14th, but around the time of the 12th five-year plan, so that's, mm, what, more than 10 years ago now, China began to look at the technologies of the future, understanding that in order to create prosperity in the long term, it was going to have to upgrade its economy to a more efficient, uh, higher value, higher technology, more advanced economy. So in looking at what technologies China could seek to dominate, which patents it should seek to own rather than license, all of those things which make for a successful economy, it identified low carbon technologies as the technologies of the future invested enormously in things like wind power, solar power, Mm. nuclear, big hydro, all the low carbon technologies which China understood because they understood about climate change and they understood that those technologies would be needed. So the industrial economy of the first two decades, which was this highly polluting, highly emitting model, is undergoing a massive transition right now. All transitions are difficult. Transitions in China are particularly difficult, again, because of scale. So it's messy and it's uneven, but the trend is absolutely clear. Yes, and, and that that strategy that you mentioned, it has been formalised into Made in China 2025, of course, which is this industrial strategy that picks out 10 key sectors, high-tech sectors that China invests in clean energy is one of them, which means that it's 
contributing to a quarter of the world's energy, renewable energy investment. Hydroelectricity, I found out in my research, is the main source of energy for China. I didn't know that before. But how much of this should, be, should we be celebrating China for and how much of it is down to its own political interests? And well, I don't know if you think that's even a, a, a useful question at all. What I'm trying to get at is whether or not energy security is a reason for China to be going into renewables because it gets half of its oil from the Middle East and it's now a, the world's largest oil importer. So is it just political calculus that it makes more sense to go into renewables? I think it's more of a, a technology and economic calculation. You know, policy works better when it's also in the interests of the policymakers. So in, in my view, it's in everybody's interest to tackle climate change. There is nothing to be said for climate change. And so to that extent, it's in everyone's interest. What, what marks China out for for example, from, from Donald Trump, is that Donald Trump is trying to, you know, breathe, give the kiss of life to a moribund technology, which is coal, uh, which is dying because of the market anyway. Whereas China is saying, we want to dominate the technologies of the future, which is a position that, you know, previously you would have thought the United States would hold. So we should credit Chinese leadership with some, you know, sensible joined up thinking in that regard. As far as energy security goes, though, that is, of course, a big issue for China, and particularly in the future, where you can see energy needs will continue to rise, and particularly electricity needs. If China does electrify both its transport and its industrial processes, and electricity needs, primary electricity will go up a lot. So where is it to come from? And as you say, China is a net importer of oil and highly dependent on particular routes through the Malacca Straits, for example, which it regards as vulnerable. So it's had, a, again, a multi-part strategy over this. There's been a big you know, pipeline program. There is a diversification of supply. They've been building new ports to, to deal with those energy flows. But it's, it's also the, the root of China's kind of clinging to coal seems to be really largely about energy security. Because what does China have? It has an awful lot of coal. It'll never burn all that coal. But I think it, you have to understand that if you're looking at an increasingly hostile external environment, where obviously energy becomes a kind of key factor, then the, the fact that you have a lot of coal as a last resort does weigh quite heavily. You, it probably isn't helping the transition, you know, that we have this geostrategic standoff right now. As far as renewables go, yes, they were expected to make a, a major contribution and will make a, an even bigger contribution now that Xi Jinping has announced a net zero target. But I'm not sure that they will ever fully power China. I think what we're going to see in China and in any big economy is a mix of options. So China has a very big nuclear program. As you say, China has a very big hydro program. It's built more dams than any other nation in history over a shorter period of time. Environmentalists take a mixed view on dams. It's looking at the hydrogen economy, as a lot of other advanced economies are. It's looking at offshore wind now. You know, it's looking at a lot of options. And those will apply to different bits of the economy 
depending on what they're suited for. Yeah, and I want to get onto that sort of motivation in a sort of authoritarian state. Where does that impetus for change come from in a little bit? But for now, you mentioned the Three Gorges Dam, for example, and why environmentalists find it controversial. You know, partly it puts you onto renewables, but on the other side, it destroys natural habitats. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about China's conservation of nature as well. You know, the country's rapid urbanization has led to countryside paved up, rivers polluted, as I said in my introduction. So do you think that as China gets wealthier, it's becoming better at conserving nature or bringing back some of the nature that it got rid of during those really fast years of economic growth? Well, again, you know, I think you learn a lot about China's trajectory from looking at what happened in other countries. There is a a saying in Yorkshire, not much heard these days, but when Yorkshire was an industrial heartland, it was incredibly polluted, you know, the air quality was awful, you know, the rivers were also black. And there was an expression which said, where there's muck, there's brass, which translated means where there's dirt, there's money. Mm. And Mao Zedong had the same idea. He loved seeing factory chimneys in cities with smoke coming out of them, because what that meant to him was, you know, modernity, progress, advancement, and all of that. And I think for people coming out of poverty, they will put up with quite a lot in the first stages of, in, of industrialization. And then they become a little more affluent and they want a better life and they start to complain. And you see mm. those complaints in China in the first decade of this century when air quality was truly awful. You know, we had um, smogalopolis, which, you know, grounded aircraft and you couldn't see across the street and it was just dreadful. And although China is an authoritarian system, it's a mistake to think that public opinion doesn't matter. The longevity of, a, of an authoritarian system depends to a considerable extent on keeping people happy. And when you get a source of such pervasive unhappiness as appalling air quality, the government feels obliged to do something about it. There is a kind of philosophical argument in China I think you can take it a little too readily, which is that, you know, China and indeed other quote unquote Eastern cultures are somehow in harmony with nature in a way that Western (laughs) cultures are not. And that comes down to kind of ancient wisdom of the East number 54 in my my book. Um, Isabel, we spend our afternoons knee-highing rice paddies (laughs) with pointy hats, didn't you know? (laughs) Indeed you do, you know. But if you, there's a wonderful book by a man called Mark Elvin called The Retreat of the Elephants, which charts 2,000 years of environmental degradation in China, brought about by an authoritarian state which had, you know, a high need for revenues and essentially kind of, you know, wanted to make money out of out of the land and a, and a big population. And the result was, you know, 2,000 years of deforestation and degradation of China's land. So when you come to the last phase of the Industrial Revolution, as I said earlier, China had very little headroom. It has a mm. big population, uh, relatively little agricultural land, a very low per capita allocation of water. So when you start trashing all that, you come to crisis very, very quickly. When I started China Dialogue, which was in 2006, China was already in the middle of an environmental crisis, but it hadn't really been acknowledged officially at that point. There was an environmental movement. There were a lot of civil society people who were trying to move the policy. 
And the official view at the time was worrying about the environment is something that rich countries can afford to do. And when China gets wealthier, China mm. will worry about it. Meanwhile, we have to raise people out of poverty. So it was always a kind of development first approach. And there was a particularly enlightened vice minister in the what was then the um, it wasn't a ministry, but it was the entity in the government that dealt with environment which was relatively powerless, but full of very dedicated people. And he argued publicly that China couldn't wait until it got rich because it was already in an environmental crisis. And if it didn't address it now, China never would get rich because there would be an environmental collapse. And China came really close to that. You know, mm. if you look at things like soil pollution, water pollution, water scarcity, all the rather precious and irreplaceable resources that China had in rather mean quantities had been trashed by the model of industrialization, by very poor regulation, by you know, rampant pollution of all kinds. And around that time, from 2006 onwards, there was a growing civic awareness of this and people who were a bit better off, they moved into the city, they had one child, they had an apartment and they, they didn't want their child not to be able to go outside. They didn't want to bring up their rather precious offspring in this awful, awful environment. So the government then began to look at this very seriously as a matter of internal security and then began to apply policies to deal with it. And I want to ask you a little bit more about those feedback mechanisms that are at play here. A lot of Western political theorists, for example, question how it is possible to have that kind of feedback mechanism without essentially a formal ballot box. But you're saying that public opinion does matter. I wondered how it matters and why the government should be listening to people if they can't be essentially voted out. In a case of Beijing's air pollution, for example, uh, one key factor that seems to have made a difference was actually foreign pressure in that the US embassy in Beijing started putting up its own air quality indicator on its roof so that the residents of the city could see what the air actually was like in the city. So is that kind of foreign pressure also important? It's interesting you mentioned that because that was rather a key moment when, when the US embassy did that. But a lot of things were happening around that time. If you remember, the Beijing Olympics were happening around that time. And a number of it, this was, of course, you know, a hugely prestigious thing for China. It was kind of hooray, China, you know, we're back in the world. Look, the world loves us. Mm. And the government did not want elite athletes saying we're not going to perform in, in that air quality, which some of them were saying. And that because it obviously hurt China's prestige internationally, but also it hurt China's, the government's reputation at home. And to your very interesting question of, of what is the feedback mechanism for public opinion, at that time, again, it was officially acknowledged that there were around between 80 and 100,000 major protests a year in China around environmental questions. So some of that would be land seizure because local authorities were seizing mm. peasant land and building on it. Um, but a lot of it was, was simply about the land or the, or the waterways being, being so damaged that people couldn't make a living or people be getting sick. Um, there were cancer villages all over China. You know, a lot of things began to leak into public consciousness which were really impacting people's lives. The party did not want, it was a more liberal moment, I have to say, at that point. 
But the party didn't want urban discontent, and which it was getting over air pollution. It, you know, it does need to maintain itself. It needs to present itself as, as an entity that justifies its power by looking after the people. If it's manifestly not doing that, it becomes vulnerable. So how does it know what people think? Well, the Xinhua News Agency, for example, which is, which is a party entity, reports 70% of its findings internally to the party, 30% are published as news in, and as any other news agency. So okay. that's one intelligence gathering entity. And actually, if you're a corrupt local official and someone from Xinhua knocks on the door, you would probably tremble because you know that, <laughs> that you, know, you can't do anything about the Xinhua person and they will report back directly to the party. So that's, that's one way of doing it. But the importance of the US embassy monitor, and it was an air quality monitor, was that it showed up the contrast between the way Beijing City was reporting air quality, mm. which they had this slightly crazy scale, which was blue sky. <laughs> 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 Mostly not, actually, but anyway, they, maybe they were colorblind. Anyway, they, they were saying, you know, blue sky was fine. And, you know, the, the US embassy monitor was going so far off the charts that at one point they, they said, it's crazy bad. <laughs> you know? So between blue sky and crazy bad, the citizens were saying, who's telling the truth here? And again, at that time, the, the vice minister that I was talking about was pushing for some key elements that you need to manage the environment properly. One is good information, mm -hmm. transparency, the public right to know. Because if you're not measuring pollution, you don't know what you have to deal with. And you mm -hmm. don't know if you're being successful in dealing with it. So it forced the U.S. Embassy provided a source of information that eventually forced the Beijing city authorities to open up their own data collection and to make it public. And now all over China, you have real time data that you can go and look at for air quality, which is pretty radical for China. But Isabel, how does that happen now? I think when it comes to other areas of Chinese topics, we see that President Xi has clamped down uh, and become less liberal than um, his predecessors were. So do you think that has had an impact on how public opinion feeds back, whether it's on climate issues or other things? I think undoubtedly. And not only, I mean, you're absolutely right. Since 2012, we have seen a, a serious tightening of public space in China, the taking down of people with very large social media accounts, for mm -hmm. example, a very a narrowing of the rules for what you can say on social media. We've seen the taking down of very, very prominent critics, you know, including multimillionaires who've, you know, party members, you know, prominent academics. Lots of people have been taken down on one pretext or another. And the reason is that they criticize Xi Jinping. So we've seen a tremendous rolling back, if you like, of the kind of liberalization that Deng Xiaoping initiated. You know, under Deng Xiaoping, uh, there were effectively term limits for power holders. Yes. Xi Jinping has done away with that. You know, under Deng Xiaoping, there was an encouragement. There was a view, the famous Deng Xiaoping remark of, you know, you open the window, it doesn't matter if a few flies come in or, you know, doesn't matter if the cat is black or white as long as it catches mice. All these kind of famous aphorisms uh, that attributed to Deng Xiaoping, which heralded a much more liberal, open society than we have now. Yes. And let's talk a little bit about the Chinese communist leadership itself. You mentioned earlier that it understands climate change. 
a lot of politicians around the world don't understand climate change or at least don't prioritise it considering different societal interests. So does the CCP understand it more or is it just prioritising it more? Is it perhaps because, as some people have said, a lot of the leading politicians in the party come from science backgrounds, you know, they study science at universities and so they're less likely to be at least deniers? <laughs> I think there is a certain truth in, in that, that certainly at the time when climate change became a, a you know a, a topic of active discussion uh, there was a very high proportion of engineers in the senior leadership and they understand basic physics which is essentially all you need in order to understand climate change so even deniers can understand they as we as we now know from the files of various american oil majors they've understood since the 1970s they just hasn't been in their interest to acknowledge that and they spent a great deal of time as the tobacco companies did in trying to create obfuscation and confusion around it again around the 2005 2006 a couple of things happened in policy circles in china around climate change because when i first discussed this issue at that time in Beijing, people would say, what we care about is pollution, climate change, just kind of out of their hands. Mm. But when they started to address climate change seriously was when China was about to become the world's biggest emitter. And that meant that China, I remember one uh, climate analysts saying to me, you know, the tall poppy attracts the wind. And China, China's leaders began to think it's not a good look to be the world's biggest emitter, even if we are claiming still to be a poor developing country, because poor developing countries are going to be affected by climate change and we will be seen as a bad actor. So they began to look at this. They also began to think how vulnerable China was to climate impacts. And if you think about it, major delta cities, you know, Guangzhou, Shanghai, Tianjin, you know, really seriously affected by sea level rise, chronic water shortages north of the Yangtze in the northern half of China. And so any changes to the, to the monsoon, to the rainfall patterns, the snow melt in the, in the Himalaya feeding the big rivers, all of these things were kind of existential problems for Chinese society. So it, this was borne in on the senior leaders by a series of lectures and reports which they commissioned from experts to inform the senior leaders of the party about what climate change was about and what would need to be done about it. So from that time, we've had pretty settled policy. Mm. So the argument with China is not a lack of commitment, and particularly since they have a direct economic interest in climate mitigation because they are the world's biggest suppliers of renewables. So, you know, it's good business, right? Mm. But the complaint with China is like the complaint with many other countries that since this is a long-term threat, which requires short-term action, any crisis tends to knock it off the agenda. And in China, as everywhere else, there are competing interests. There is a big lobby for coal. There is a big lobby for cement, a big lobby for steel. You can't just turn around an economy the size of China overnight. And so there's a lot of balancing going on and a lot of declaration followed by not quite enough action. But I don't think Chinese politicians are the only ones we could complain about in that regard. And at least they have a kind of settled commitment on climate mm. change, which we should welcome. 
And you mentioned that it at the time didn't want to be the tall poppy, but it now wants to be the tall poppy in a positive way, which is to be a climate change leader, especially after Trump left the Paris Agreement. How do we evaluate that? Is that with in good faith because it cares so much about climate change or is it also to beat Trump over the head in a sort of geopolitical way? Well, I think geopolitically, no one has done more to make China great again than Donald Trump. You know, <laughs> uh, just <laughs> breathtakingly stupid policy. You know, Trump seems to have an attitude to China without actually having a strategy or a policy. So by leaving the Paris Agreement, which he claims is unfair in some way to the United States. Let me just remind everyone that the Paris Agreement is a bottom-up agreement. So every country brings what it wants to bring to the table. You know, if anyone's unfair to the United States, it can only be the United States. You know, so it makes no sense. But most of what Trump says, in my view, makes very little sense. But by walking out of the Paris Agreement, what he created for Xi Jinping was an opportunity to turn up at Davos in uh, February of uh, January, February 2017, wearing a suit and tie, addressing a rather nervous global elite at that point, with words of calm reassurance. Don't worry, China's a steady friend of globalization. We stick by our commitments and all of that. And got huge, huge kudos for doing that. That was a very easy win, which was essentially handed to them mm. by Donald Trump. When it comes to leadership, it's rather more complicated because what kind of leadership do you need to move hundreds? 90 countries, is it? In a very, very difficult change of direction. You need more than rhetoric and good catering, which is, you know, we can certainly rely on China for. You need the capacity to mobilize others, to inspire others, to coerce when necessary. And the difference that you can note between Copenhagen, when the United States was not engaged, because Obama was too busy trying to fix the health system in the US, and Paris, where the United States was engaged, was remarkable. And one of the things that made Paris come together was that two years previously, Xi Jinping and Obama had signed a deal between themselves to cooperate on climate change. And that did two things. It stopped this being an antagonistic relationship. They recognized a common interest and a commitment to work together towards a common goal. But it also brought in the whole weight of American diplomacy, which pre-Trump, let us remember, was an effective and important machine. China has no experience of showing that kind of leadership at all. And if you look at, for example, China's hosting the Biodiversity Conference of the Parties, COP15, which was to have been in China, in Kunming in November, but has had to be postponed because of COVID. It's not going well. And Chinese leadership is defensive. To be a leader, you need to have followers. And although we can you know, admire and respect China, I'm not sure that many people who don't live in China would choose to live under that system. You know, you may say, well, the Chinese people are happy to trade off greater prosperity for less freedom, but you wouldn't volunteer for it if you didn't have to. And so 
it's partly soft power it's partly yes. lack of experience and practice it's partly not having the right tools in the toolbox china has a very kind of declaratory form of government you know there's a high symbolic content in it and you're kind of meant to you know clap the symbols but there's often not much behind that especially after coronavirus being such a global phenomenon do you think that's made that soft power part of things harder for china the evidence is that it has you know the the handling of the outbreak in wuhan in the early days was clearly extremely damaging and a direct product of the system that we were talking about earlier where it's in no local carder's interest to report bad news up the food chain so so that was really really damaging that was followed by the wolf warrior diplomacy moment where china again because it needed to shore up the domestic discontent needed to demonstrate that the world loved china mm. uh, so that then you had a dual policy of shipping out equipment heavily labeled you know with love from the people's republic in various languages mm. and suppressing any kind of criticism of china and that alienated huge amounts of public opinion in europe not just in the united states you know it was crass it was bullying it was unpleasant and the result of that is that if you look at the latest pew surveys you know china isn't doing well in the global popularity contest nor is the united states because of the trump administration but you know china as a kind of global brand has certainly taken a hit coupled with of course Xinjiang Hong Kong and a deterioration in the geostrategic framework which means that you're getting much more overt criticism of China than we did 10 years ago as well that's so interesting i have so many more questions for you but i think we'll have to leave it there as well hilton thank you so much it's been a real pleasure thank you sydney Thank you for listening to this episode of Chinese Whispers. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're listening to this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel, remember that Chinese Whispers has its own channel as well. If you just search Chinese Whispers wherever you get your podcast from, you will always get the latest episode first there. If you have any feedback, positive or negative, but preferably constructive, please do email me at podcast@spectator.co.uk. And I'd also love it if you left a review or told your family and friends about the podcast. It's the way to help us grow. So thanks so much for listening and join us again next time. Bye.